You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Book of James. I've got to tell you, when I was trying to get this lesson ready, um, I came up with like 10 or 15 different titles. Like It was hard just landing on a title for this because you have like, Faith that works is a faith that works, or um, what faith is in action is the book of James, or or the visible testimony of our faith. Um, There's so many different ideas behind it, but it all comes down to this. When we look at the book of James, we see a book that is written to show what faith looks like in our lives, what faith looks like in action. We all know what to expect when a politician gets up to speak, right? Right? What do you expect when a politician stands up to speak? The truth. truth. Yeah. Yeah, um, (laughs) Well, sometimes, maybe, um, that'd be nice. But I think we we do expect them to have exuberant promises, right? We expect them to promise us the world. We expect limitless hopes and dreams. You know, if you vote for me, all your wildest dreams will come true. We expect them to have a goal of prosperity for all people everywhere. Right? It doesn't matter what class you are, eventually electing me will make your situation in life better. And we expect that by the time that they're done with the country, people will skip everywhere they go, hug everyone, and sing Christmas songs in July. Right? We expect them to promise. But when we look throughout history, what is it that marks a great politician? When we think of great leaders, what, what is it that marks who they are? Was it their speeches? Well, no, we can think back on some politicians and some wonderful speeches they gave, but part of what makes those speeches so wonderful is the character and the actions of the man behind them, right? And so I think when we look at good leaders throughout history, what we look for is their actions and their character. That's what marks a good leader, because anybody can make a promise, anybody can make a speech, anybody can testify to something that they believe, but very few people live it out. It's true with politicians, and it's even more true with Christians. Right? I mean, isn't it true that when society looks like Christianity, they look at us the same way that we look at politicians? You know, we expect, and they expect us to bear testimony to hope, and to say that that Christ is better, and and to say that uh, that there's hope for them. They expect us to have some Right beliefs, I think. But the, where that so many Christians fall short is how do our character, how do our actions bear testimony to what we say to be true? And I think the world sees us, and oftentimes they see those two things don't work together. Okay? You say that Christ's love is all for, for all people, but then you don't demonstrate it. You, know, you say there's hope for all, but how come no, you're not telling anybody? When the world looks at Christendom as a whole... I think they see a a great inconsistency. And that's a problem. And that's the problem that James addresses in this letter. James writes a letter that is light on theology. It is not a whole lot about truth about God in this letter. But it is dense in practicality. This is how you live. The entire letter is practical. What do you do with your faith? How does it change you? And what characteristics should mark a believer? So let's pray and we'll get into our letter tonight. Father, we love you, Lord. I thank you for this evening we have to 
to open your word, your perfect word that's written for us. And God, I pray that tonight you'd help us to make this personal. Lord, to see that each one of us has faith. We believe in you. We believe in Christ. We believe that Christ died for us. But Lord, we need to see how that faith should be changing us. So God, I pray that you would convict us, that Lord, that you would show us areas of our lives that aren't being changed, that, that need to be. Lord, that you would help us to just focus on ourselves for this hour, to focus on what we need to change to bring you glory in our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this short but, but jam-packed book of what it means to live, in a, live as a Christian in this culture. I pray you bless this evening. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the author of the book is James. Okay, there's four James found in the Word of God. Uh, two of them are fairly unknown. One of them was an apostle, and one of them was the brother of Jesus Christ, the half-brother of Jesus. And so the question is, who wrote the book? And the vast majority of people believe that the author was James, the brother of Jesus. And that's because when we look at the timing of this book and we look at its contents, we know that James the Apostle was martyred in A.D. 44. And so it's highly unlikely that James the Apostle wrote this because the book was most likely written after that time. And we know that it was written by someone who had a great deal of authority because just the way he speaks and the fact that he introduces himself simply as James' a servant, as if everybody would know who he is. He, he writes this letter as a man with some level of authority. Here we have James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, writing a letter. Now, if we want to know the story of how James came to Christ, we actually find just little tidbits throughout Scripture that help us understand that. We know that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, he's called the half-brother of Jesus. We know that in John chapter 7, 5, that he is at that time an unbeliever. He's not impressed with what Jesus is doing. He thinks Jesus is crazy just like everybody else does, all the Jews. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 7, we find that James was a, Jesus appeared to James after he was resurrected from the dead. He appeared to James very specifically and then to all the apostles. And then we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that James is now in the upper room with the apostles and all the disciples and, and they're praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Soon after this time, the Holy Spirit does come and, and Pentecost takes place. And so now James there is part of the church, he's, he's part of the believers, and he's praying to his Savior who he once thought was his crazy half-brother. So that's who he is. His position in the church, uh, as we look through our scripture, we get a lot, of, a lot of things that kind of just indicate where he's at in the church. In Acts chapter 12, verse 17, when, Peter, when, the, when, the, when Peter's released from prison miraculously by the angel. And after he's released, he instructs them to tell James and the church. And that just indicates that James was probably one of the leaders of the church at that time. And then we look to Acts chapter 15, and we find when they meet for the Jerusalem council, it is James who is the chair of the council. He's like the spokesperson for all of the elders and all the apostles that are gathered there, which is pretty impressive because you think Peter and John and Paul, they're all gathered there, and yet it's James that's the one that kind of speaks up for the crowd, and he's the one that summarizes their decision at the end and presents it to the church. Position of great authority in the church. 
in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, he is called a pillar of the church, and his, his name there along with Peter and John. And then in Acts chapter 21, Paul arrives to speak with the church of Jerusalem, and it says he speaks with the church and the other elders there. And so we get this picture of James being a great deal of authority of the church of Jerusalem. He is the senior pastor or senior elder there. Even his brother Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, when he introduces himself, he says that I am a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. And so he's, he's marking out who he is by the fact that, yes, he's a servant of Christ, but he's also related to James. Then everybody would know because everybody knew who James was. A man of great, great authority within the church. What was he like? What was his character like? Well, it's interesting. Historians during that time refer to him as James the Just. He was a man that everybody saw as as a person with great character. Uh, Eusebius records that James used to enter alone into the temple and could be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship to God. And so the picture that we're given of James as a, as a person, even though we don't know a lot about him historically in the Bible, when we look throughout history, he's called James the Just, and people are impressed with the amount he prays and his piety and his, his love for Christ. He's presented as a, a man of great character. But how did he view himself? How did he view himself? It's amazing that when he writes this book, and you think of who he is, and you think of how everybody else viewed him, he is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the senior pastor of the most important church, at least at the time that he was writing this letter, the most important church in the world. It was the place that everything came from. He's mentioned as one of the pillars with Peter and John being the other two. So you think about how he was perceived by other people. He was perceived as one of the most important people around during this day. This is how he introduces himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And the word servant there is slave. And so instead of saying, I am James, the pastor of this so-and-so church. I am James, uh, the the half-brother of Jesus. I am James, the guy who proceeded over the Jerusalem council. Instead of acknowledging anything great about him, he first and foremost views himself as a slave I owe him everything. I do his will. It's all about him and not me. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's how James saw himself. We can say so many wonderful things about James, but the fact is he viewed himself only as a slave to Jesus Christ. And that is what what makes him a wonderful example for us. And, And when we read this book, we realize that he's writing from a perspective of, I believe what I'm saying. I I have this deep rooted faith in my own life and it's causing me to believe that this is how I should live. Okay? And so I'm writing it to you not as someone who says this is an ideal. I'm writing as someone who this is what I'm trying to follow. And so it's from his heart. Um, the date of the book, AD 44 to 49. Um, this was probably the first book that was written in the New Testament. And so that's, that's kind of neat. I mean, it's you know, the earliest look at the church. And so, 80, 44 to 49. And I think pointing out who the audience was is important as well. The audience was Jewish believers. We saw that when he said to the 12 tribes, speaking about the 12 tribes of uh, the Jews, 
which are scattered abroad greeting. So I'm writing to the, the diaspora Jews, that the Jews have been dispersed abroad. During this time, AD 44 to 49, it is soon after the events of Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 12. Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 7? Stephen was martyred, right? And then Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that the person standing by, watching their cloaks, was Paul or Saul. And then it says, and the Jews were scattered. Okay? Because of the persecution, they scattered all over the place. And so, getting this picture of, of James, who is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem at this time, and now has people in his church that are so being persecuted, by, also by a guy named Paul, that they're, they're having to leave their homes, having to, to leave everything that they have, having to get up and go and find a new place, because, and even having people like Paul who are chasing them down. They're, they're terrified, they're persecuted, they're a hurting church. These are the Jews that have been scattered abroad, and now James is writing to them as their previous pastor, trying to help them find their way in their new life wherever they're going. He's writing to these Jews that have scattered. And, and they're not just Jews that are just like, oh, I'm writing a letter to random Jews everywhere. They're, they're my people. They're, they're the people that used to attend my church, that I used to shepherd. They're people he loved. And he says, to these Jews, he's writing to. So what is his purpose then? It is to call Jewish believers to act upon the faith they profess to believe in. Okay, so I want... The believers here, these Jews that believe, I want you to act upon your faith, the faith that you profess with your mouth, I want it to to be seen in your life, by living a life marked by good works in all areas. That's the life he wanted for them, that all areas of their lives would be changed by their faith. This is an immensely practical book, it's a rarely doctrinal book, and the truth is, for some reason, my immediate, personally, my immediate reaction to the fact that there's not very much doctrine and a lot of practical Christian living to it isn't positive. My immediate reaction to that is, I like how Paul does it better. I like how Paul lays out, you know, this is the doctrinal truth, and he takes a lot of time, you know, Romans 1 to 12, a lot of time doing that, and then it's like, okay, now this is how you live. Ephesians 1 to 3, this is the truth. Okay, now Ephesians 4 to 6, this is how you live. I like that. But James, once again, it's like it's a, it's a sermon. And he is pounding application after application after application. And it's good for me to realize that because there's a lot, I think there's a lot of people when, when they take time studying the Word of God that it can very easily become an intellectual exercise. Right? I study because I want to learn more. I study because I want to get more of my theology in place. I want to get my theology systematized so that if you were to ask me any question about any area of theology, I would have a, a biblical answer. That's, that's my goal. But that is never the goal presented to us in Scripture. Okay, the goal of Scripture is always that we live out our faith. And so it is good for me to encounter a book like this where there's not that much theology but a lot of practical Christian living because it reminds me what this is all about. Even, even that knowledge that Paul gave, he always had a therefore, right? So this is good for me. So this is a very practical book. He focuses on the immediate consequences of your faith in this life. Now, it is important to point out that although Paul speaks about faith and James speaks about faith, they, they seem to come across it a slightly different angle. Okay? Paul, when he's speaking about faith, 
he's, he's very, very often speaking about the eternal consequences of our faith. That it justifies us. That it makes us right with God. That it makes, so what faith ultimately accomplishes eternally? But when James speaks about faith, he speak, he always, in, in this letter, he's speaking about what faith does in our lives today, tomorrow, as we live among other people. This is what faith accomplishes. And so he writes a book because he's trying to call believers to act upon the faith that they say they believe. Right? You, you got it all up in your head. You know how to say it. Now live it. Yes, you're encountering trials. Yes, it's tough. Live it out. The circumstances for these believers were very dim, right? I mean, they've, they've been persecuted. They've lost their homes. They've lost their families. They're trying to find a new place to live. And even when they go there, they're being persecuted. It, all of this is very difficult for them. And so they're in a tough place. And if I was... If I was to expect to say, okay, this is what I expect the letter to look like, I would have a very different beginning of the letter than he does. I'll, I'll show you how I would begin the letter. Turn to James chapter 5, verse 7. Okay, if I was writing to this group of people who I knew were hurting, I knew they were going through trials, then this is how I would begin the letter. James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord, God is, Jesus is coming back. Okay, just be patient. Hold on. He says, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering and and affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. And the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. I would expect that's how he would begin, because you see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, I know, I know it's hard for you. I know you're suffering, I know there's persecution, there's affliction, but be patient. Think about that Christ is coming back. Think about the, the prophets and Job who suffered so much in the past, but God was faithful to them and He loved them and He's merciful and, and pitiful to them. Think about Him and, and those things. Okay, that would make sense to us, right? It's kind of like a, a very encouraging thing to say. This is how He begins. Acts chapter, or James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. <laughs> what? I mean, you might think, okay, well, maybe in the Greek it means um, try, and, try and, you know, see the good side of this really bad thing. You know, there's always a good... No, it's not what it means. It means when you fall into diverse temptations, when you get into these trials and very, very difficult situations, count it as supremely happy. Okay? Understand that there is a huge, huge blessing in that, so do not encounter those things with this sadness and sorrow that the world has my brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you fall into diverse temptations, count it as a joyous and wonderful thing. Isn't that completely contrary to our intuitions? It is. It's contrary to what we'd expect somebody to say. We might think, man, this wacko pastor, what is he talking about? He wants me happy because I'm suffering? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense if you do not understand the rest of what he says. Because he goes on and he says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. 
See, he goes on to say, there is a blessing in this. Because God is going to use this to produce patience in your life that otherwise could not be produced. And so he is going to use this to, to make you perfect and entire, wanting nothing. It doesn't mean you're sinless, but you're complete and you're mature. The goal of, of James is to see his people imitating Christ. Well, the only way to really imitate Christ and to be like Christ is to know that when you go through suffering and trials, you can still trust him. You can still have joy because your joy isn't rooted in your circumstances. So he says when your circumstances are bad, you can still have joy because your goal isn't your circumstances, your goal is the imitation of Christ. Right? And this is, this is, this is a huge thing for believers to understand. And so he begins the letter saying, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations because when you have real faith, genuine faith, when this is not just a, an intellectual thing to you, but when you trust Christ so much that you want to be like him, then these things will produce, they'll produce maturity in you. They'll produce fruit. It, your suffering will not be wasted. He goes on and says that our faith should realign our thinking and regulate our actions. This faith that allows us to have joy should realign our thinking, how we view this world. It should regulate how we live, our actions. Uh, we should understand that wisdom comes from God. They wouldn't have seen it that way. The world around them didn't teach them that. But true wisdom comes from God, so seek Him. Seek to please Him. They would say that temptation is a blessing because God is working in it. Temptation is an opportunity. Trials are opportunities to please God. They would see that the Word of God was something that's not just something to know, but it's something that's meant to change you. And so he tells them that it's not just about hearing the Word, and they'd be like, oh, well, I thought I was just supposed to know this stuff. I thought I was supposed to learn it. No, it's about hearing and doing. He's teaching them that, the, that religion is not just empty creeds and doctrines. Religion is something that should prompt words and actions of love. That's what real religion is. It, the other stuff is just vain. Just, just the creeds, just the doctrines, just all of that with, apart from words and actions of love, it, it's, it's vain, it's empty, it's meaningless. He was teaching them what real religion looks like. That the poor should be loved because God loves them. They shouldn't be put to the back of the church. They shouldn't be set aside. They shouldn't be forgotten. They should be loved because they're just as much a child of God as the millionaire who's a child of God. He's teaching them that faith is not just an intellectual ascent, but a deep conviction that bears fruit. It's not just in your head. It must bear fruit. He was trying to show them that, that your speech bears your heart. You want to see someone's heart Watch how they talk. How important it is that we control our tongue. He was trying to teach them that wisdom is seen in your ability to get along with other believers and not your ability to impress. That passion should not be what you live your life by as far as following your worldly passions, following your, your fleshly passions, but your passion must be directed to God because when you draw nigh to Him, he draw, draws nigh to you. 
See, he was redirecting their thinking. He was redirecting their actions. Over and over again, he's taking a subject that they would have thought they knew something about and saying, this is how you should view it in light of your faith. He was saying that your goals ought to be determined by eternal values, not just on, by present-day circumstances. They'd say, well, look at the, the guy, the businessman who makes all these plans. Yeah, that's great. He's getting rich. That's wonderful. But he's not considering eternity. And so your goals should be determined by eternal values. He was saying that ultimately the rich will pay for their sins. And this was crazy to them in a world where they thought the rich were blessed by God. They thought that to, to have wealth was a sign of blessing. And he's saying, no, that, that's not it. Those rich people, they ultimately will stand before God. He was teaching them that the persecuted will one day find rest. See, the persecuted in their day were the ones that were just, the world didn't want, nobody wanted, their God couldn't defend them. He's trying to show them that you got it flipped around. It's the ones that are persecuted for their faith that love Christ that will ultimately find rest. It's the rich that will ultimately be judged. He's trying to reorient their thinking. He's trying to show them that prayer and confession are essential elements of the Christian life. And as we walk through the book, those are the lessons that come over and over again. So the outline of the book, introduction, chapter 1, verse 1. And then what I did here is uh, um, I found some of these online. So I've got to give credit where credit's due. Um, John MacArthur has a great outline to this book. And so I thought these, these outline points were, were good. And the way he breaks up the book is just different tests. Okay, this, is, this is the test of our faith. And so you have the test of perseverance and suffering, suffering, the test of blame and temptation, the test of response to the word, the test of impartial love, the test of righteous works, the test of the tongue, the test of humble wisdom, test of worldly indulgence, of dependence, patient endurance, truthfulness, prayerfulness, and the test of true faith. I think it's a wonderful way to break up this book. Key verse in the book, James chapter 1, verse 22 says, but be you doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. Okay, that's one verse that just summarizes all of what he's teaching. You have to do. You can't just know. And then in James 2, 26, he says, for, for the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And that is... His point, if you say you have faith and you don't have works that demonstrate that faith, then your faith isn't genuine. It's not real. It's dead. So let's take a look at the application. Number one, genuine faith will produce works. Uh, Okay, I don't know if I can reiterate this enough, but I'm told that one of the best ways to do a message is to point everybody to one truth over and over again. And so if you're being pointed to one truth over and over again, I want it to be this. I want you to understand that genuine faith will produce works. Let's, let's read James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. These are some verses that are, that are often quoted to try and prove that salvation is by works and faith. And I, I believe that's a complete misunderstanding of what the author's intent was. But they are great verse to show that works should accompany real faith. So James chapter 2, starting at verse 14, says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? His introduction to the topic. 
What's the profit if somebody has, says they have faith but doesn't have works? Can faith save him? Because on, if, my, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace and be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding that you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? I love this analogy, this example for us, because it, it does make a perfect picture for us. If you're sitting here and you have everything that they need, okay, because the assumption is that you're able to give them what they need and you just choose not to. So if you sit there and you have food and you have clothing and you have everything they need in your hand and you see them walk by or, or the need is presented to you and your answer is, be warmed and filled. I'll pray for you. I mean, there is absolutely no love there, right? There is no profit to what you've done to them. What you've done is completely contrary to what you should have done. And so what he's saying is, the words be warmed and filled mean absolutely nothing because if you wanted to warm them and fill them, you could have. But you chose not to. And so they were meaningless. You didn't actually mean be warmed and filled. Everything you said you believed or said you wanted was a complete lie. It was, it was a farce. It wasn't true, right? And that's the same thing if you say you have faith, you say you have some kind of belief, but then there's absolutely no actions that can be connected to that. In fact, your actions go against what you say you believe. Then those, that, that, that what you say is obviously so untrue because it's demonstrated by your actions so clearly. Verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. And so keep in mind here when he's speaking about faith, we, we might be tempted to just say, when he says the word faith, it means a, a really strong conviction and a belief. But that's not the faith he's talking about here. Here he says, when you have that kind of faith, it's dead. It, there's nothing to it. It's not genuine. Verse 18, Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So somebody comes, comes up to me, they said, Hey, listen, I have faith. And so James would say to them, Okay, let, let's run that by a test. You show me your faith without any works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, if you had two people and you were running this test and you had one person that said they believed something and then, and then they, they had absolutely no works to back it up and another person who didn't really say anything about what they believed but you saw them loving the poor, you saw them sharing the gospel, you, you, saw, you saw them taking care of people's physical needs, um, trying to be kind to each other, trying to forgive people, showing grace. And if, when you see this person without even hearing their, their testimony of faith, what do you assume about this person? Well, something's changed them. Something's, something's different about them. There's got to be something going on in their heart. Okay? There's got to be faith. It's what you'd assume about the person who's got all of these works that demonstrate their faith. And this guy that says, I believe in Jesus, and then does everything against him, you're not going to assume he has faith, right? No, you're going to assume he's lying. And that's his point. Verse 19, thou believest that there is one God and thou doest well. <laughs> the devils also believe and tremble. Hey, you got one thing right. You believe there's one God. Great. Do you know who else does that? Satan. Right? And so that level of faith 
If you're going to call it that, if you want to call it faith, that level of faith is shared by all the demons that live. So it's not doing anything for them. But wilt thou know, O vain man, you empty man, that faith that works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God. See ye then how by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And that is, those are the, the group of verses that cause the most trouble, right? Because he uses the example of Abraham and then he says, wasn't he justified by works and not faith only? And then he says, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And the only way to get this understood properly is when we understand what verse he just quoted in verse 23 here. Because in 23 he says, The scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Okay, he believed God, and that is what made him righteous. So what's going on with Isaac? Well, this verse is quoted from, from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. You have to jump all the way to Genesis chapter 22 before he offers Isaac as a sacrifice. So what is happening? Was he first, did he first have faith that, that made him righteous or did he do a work that made him righteous? No, he first had faith because Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 22. And so faith happened first. And so what is he saying here? He's saying that we see the works of Abraham's faith when he offered Isaac. See, if we were just to look at Abraham's life and it was to stop at Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, who knows what we would think about Abraham? I guess it would have to stop before that, he's already demonstrated some faith in his life. Uh, but the point is, when you see somebody and you see the works of their faith, then it becomes very obvious that that person is, does have faith. And when there isn't any works, then you can't see their faith, then it's, it's obvious that they don't have faith. And so, don't you see how faith wrought with works, and by, faith his, by works his faith was made perfect? Okay? His faith was completed. Well, the expectation is that all of our faith will be completed in our works. It'll be seen, okay? Because, right, if it's not seen, his argument has already been, if it's not seen, it was actually dead. It was meaningless. There was nothing really there. It was an intellectual scent, the same as Satan and his demons have. And so you must, you must carry that faith into your works. Now, the faith still happens first, but real faith has works. So, he says, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And if you take that one verse out of context, then you'd say, see, you're justified by works. But his argument for Abraham is still that Abraham was impute, had righteousness imputed to him because of his faith, but then we see his faith in action. And, and we could turn to Romans chapter 4 and see very, very clearly that Abraham's belief in God, his faith, was what, what justified him. Paul makes that abundantly clear. He uses Abraham and David as examples of people who were justified apart from their works. So the Bible is not contradicting itself, and it's not contradicting the message of the whole Bible here. What we're supposed to see here is the importance of works that flow from our faith. 
Verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. Well, again, we turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We see Rahab in the hall of faith. And, and there it's that her faith motivated her works. So her faith still came first. And it was because of her faith that she did this work that we see right here. And then verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And James is a master of this. He gives us these physical pictures that we all understand that just, they make the truth so clear and so obvious to us. Right? You have a dead body on the ground with no spirit. If there was a dead body in a coffin up here, we come to the body and we know that there's still fingers and there's still toes, there's still a skeleton, there's still, there's still components of what makes a human. But we all understand that that person is no longer alive, that there's, there's nothing there. Their, their soul, their spirit, everything that made them them is gone. That the rest of it is just the flesh. It's just their bones. It's just matter. What made them who they are is gone. And if you don't have works that, that, that flow from your faith, then your works are just, they're, they're a dead skeleton. Nothing, nothing alive there. Nothing real. Just a, just a picture of what used to be. Genuine faith will produce works. It will change how we go through adversity. It will change how we treat people. It will change how we view people. It will change how we speak. It will change how we pursue wisdom. It will change our goals and plans. It will change how we pray. It, it, will, like, it will change everything about us. That's point number one. Point number two is that some people have vain faith. He's writing to these people because he wants them to understand that, that real faith produces works, right? But the assumption is that there are some people that say they have faith and they don't produce works. And their faith is vain. It's not real. And, and this is kind of a warning, I think, for us. Hey, be careful. Check yourself out. Because there are some people, their lives aren't changing. There's nothing going on in their heart. There, there's, they, they give intellectual assent to things, but there's no change. There's no fruit. There are no works that accompany it. And that faith is dead. There's nothing to it. When these things are not changing, you have cause for concern. If your life is not slowly changing, you have cause for concern. Right? There should be something happening. Do you know faith is something that's kind of, it's hard to just define. It's hard to say like, okay, this is exactly what it is in a perfect definition. But we can be very sure what it's not. Faith is not just a feeling. Right? It's, it's not just like a tingly feeling you get inside. Faith isn't that. Faith is not just intellectual assent. It's not just up here. It's not just down in your gut sometime. It's not just way up here. Um, and faith is not just an action. Right? It's not, it's, not, it's not the works apart from the belief because there are a lot of people that they just do things because they're impressing other people or they do things because it's pragmatic but they're not doing them because they actually have some belief. Right? And so it is hard to define but the best I think we can do is that faith is a deep conviction within you that causes you to reorient your actions based on your beliefs. And so, if we say we believe that Jesus is the only Savior that should change how we live. If we say that we believe that he died on the cross for our sins, 
That should change how we view our sins. Right? If we say that we believe Jesus answers prayer, that should change how we pray. If we say that we believe the Bible is the Word of God, it should change how we view the Word of God. It can't, we can't just say things and then not act like it and then act like we still believe them. That is his point. And so he's writing to these people who are going through persecution. He's writing to these people at hard times. And we might think the best thing to do is say, oh, buddy, it's going to be okay. I'm going to fix your, fix your circumstances. I'm going to do everything I can so that your circumstances are okay because if I do that, then you'll be a good Christian again. That's not his... What he's trying to say is, okay, I get it. It's hard. And, and people in the past have gone through things like this, and it's been hard. But God's expectation of you doesn't change because of your circumstances. He expects you still to, to speak right. He expects you to live right. He expects you to pray. He expects you to do what the Word of God says. Because if you don't, then you just had dead faith anyway. And so, it is possible to have vain faith. We must be very careful. We must examine ourselves. James calls these people to get the things in their lives right. That Christianity is immensely practical. This world has enough hypocrites. There's enough politicians. I'm not saying all of them are bad. There's enough people that act like that. There's enough people that say, make wonderful claims and wonderful promises and don't deliver on any of them. Don't really believe on any of them. What we need is believers who live what they believe.